The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, for the last eight weeks, we have been meditating on Jesus' statement from Matthew 11 that following him would lead to an easier yoke in life. And we started our time by asking the question, well, what, what did Jesus mean by this? And we discovered that Jesus was really alluding to two intertwined principles from the context in which he lived. The first one was a sort of metaphorical uh, adaptation. It, it, was, it was this reality that the yoke was the teaching of a rabbi. It was uh, the particular rabbi's take uh, regarding the issues of the law and the prophets and how to interpret them, how to understand them. And so Jesus was inviting the people to become his disciples and to learn how it is that he interpreted the scriptures. And so that's, that's part of it. But the other piece is that it was an invitation to learn how to live like Jesus. He, in this analogy of a yoke, you think of a, a double yoke with two oxen in it, he is the stronger, older, and wiser ox who is taking the young ox and training that young ox on how to plow through life. We are his understudies or his apprentices who sort of stick our neck in the other side of that yoke. And we learn from him how to carry the burdens of life with him. And using that as our launch point, we began to examine the things that Jesus taught and did to try and figure out how to match his step and how to learn his way of living, his yoke, his lifestyle. And so we started out in week two talking about priorities. How, how to seek first the kingdom of God. That, that once we, we put that piece in order, that all of the spokes of life find their purpose. But until we understand priority, then the spokes are like spokes attached to a hub, but without a wheel on the outside. They just sort of flop around. We need a central purpose. We have to understand that our central purpose is to seek first the kingdom of God. Then week three, we talked about Sabbath and enjoying the, the, uh, the gift of rest that God gives. Week four, we talked about relationships and how, to, how we should not spend the, the bulk of our energy on the relationships that are the least meaningful. That we have to conserve our relational energy and pour into the relationships that are most vital in our life. We have to prioritize how we spend our time, our emotional energy, and our resources in investing in relationships. And that the Bible gives us guidance on that. Week five, we talked about abiding and a life of closeness to God. How how it is that we can be connected relationally to the Lord in such a way that it begins to have this outward work that Jesus calls fruit in each of our lives. And how it is that we can redeem the many moments in life, the, the small little fragments of time that, that sometimes get taken up by other things like Facebook or news feeds or, you know, all kinds of things that fill in the gaps of life, that when we get rid of that other stuff and we begin to take a, a, a look at how to connect with Jesus in small, many moments, how we can live in a way that is obtaining and receiving life from Jesus personally. In week six, Mitch talked to us about slowing and making it our ambition to lead a quiet life. And how this world around us is running at a breakneck pace. And there are so many distractions and, and the tyranny of the urgent is always pressing against us. But when we slow life down, when we begin to walk at a pace where we actually enjoy the life God has given us, 
how all of life all of a sudden becomes worship. <laughs> From the way that the sun shines through the smoke to the beautiful leaves and the trees to the moments as a dad where your kids run up to you and give you a hug or a mother to the interactions you have with friends to the car ride on the way to work to the stop sign that lets you linger for just a minute you find as life slows down there are all these moments where you can turn to God and find connection with him last week we talked about simplicity exercising godliness with contentment and how it is that when we, we reduce the clutter in our lives and we really, we, we really just eliminate all these things that pull out our time and distract us, how we free up bandwidth to focus on the things that are most important, the things that are eternal. And this week, as we close out this series, we're going to be synthesizing the things that we've talked about and looking at the life of Jesus from the Gospel of Mark to see what patterns sort of emerge, what we can learn from him. And this week, we're going to talk about habit. This week, we're going to talk about habit. So starting out in Mark chapter 1, I want us to take a look at the life of Jesus. And and we're just going to kind of thumb through the gospel of Mark. I'm, I'm going to try really hard not to make a whole lot of comments and just keep it really, really simple so that we're not here till 4 o'clock. But I want us to see that spread out, remember the Gospels really only cover about a three-year span of Jesus' life. And what we'll see is that in that three-year span, Jesus maintained a vibrant spiritual life, a life of discipline, a life of habit. So in Mark chapter 1, I chose the Gospel of Mark simply because it's the shortest of the four Gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. And, um, and my hope was to not get bogged down and not, and not get stuck here. So in chapter 1, it, this is a fast-moving Gospel. Beginning in verse 9, we see this at the baptism of Jesus. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and he was baptized by John, that's John the Baptist, in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him, on Jesus, like a dove. And a voice came from heavens saying, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. So you have this amazing, magical moment of the, of the baptism of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the heavens being opened up, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove upon Jesus and John bears witness to the whole thing. And a voice from heaven is heard saying, this is my beloved son, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. An amazing moment. And then check out verse 12. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days and being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. We have this short, brief account in the Gospel of Mark of Jesus making this pilgrimage to be baptized by John the Baptist. And then after coming out of the water in this amazing moment where he is proclaimed the son in whom the father delights, he immediately is driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he will fast for 40 days. During that time, Satan, the tempter, the deceiver, comes to try and tempt Jesus. One of the Gospels records that it was at the end of his fasting time. During that time of fasting, he is practicing spiritual disciplines. He is connected deeply to his Father, who is nourishing him and strengthening him. And on this wilderness retreat, He solidified what was his mission to come. This is the the entry, if you will, into his public mission in life. 
And he is preparing for that ministry. And so the father's been nourishing and strengthening him, solidifying his mission and his purpose for his public ministry and how he would carry that out. He was empowered by the father and empowered by scripture to overcome Satan. The other gospel accounts tell us that when Satan came to tempt him, Jesus answered every temptation with a quote from Scripture that apparently he was meditating on. Matter of fact, all three Scriptures that Jesus uses are all from the book of Deuteronomy. So we know where Jesus was having his devotions in his time away. And after his pilgrimage, Jesus was ready to launch into his public ministry and to start inviting people to follow him as disciples or as apprentices who were invited to learn of him and to learn with him. Then if you go down just a couple of verses, in verse 14 it says this, Now John the Baptist was arrested and Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, Repent and believe the gospel. Coming out of this time of temptation in the desert, a time of fasting and praying and seeking his father, and coming out of a time of spiritual warfare and engagement with the enemy. He comes back and he immediately starts preaching the gospel and telling people that the kingdom of God is at hand and that they should repent and believe the gospel. Everything that followed in Jesus' ministry came out of his time in the desert. This was the moment. In verse 35, we read this of chapter 1. Jesus is now preaching in Galilee and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and they said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus now in, in the rhythm of his ministry life, in the rhythm of his public ministry, while it was early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departs, he goes to a place by himself, and he seeks the Father in prayer. When the disciples finally wake up, they come to him, and they're looking for him, they're like, hey, where have you been? We've been looking for you. And Jesus says, hey, it's time to roll, guys. I, I can't stay here anymore. There's other towns. This is the reason why I was brought forth. This is the reason why I came. He has purpose. He has clear direction because he sat at the feet of his father listening for his voice and in fellowship with him. Then skip down to verse 45. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread excuse me in verse oh man I, I blew that mark 313 i apologize mark 313 and he went up on a mountain and called to him those whom he had desired and they came to him and he appointed twelve, and whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the names Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And then he went home. And the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. So Jesus, again, here in this place, goes up on a mountain, calls to them, those whom he had desired, and they came to him. Jesus sought out lonely places to pray. And people came to him for ministry. 
And Jesus knew who he was supposed to bring along with him. He went out on retreat with his disciples. He, he heard from the Father and he knew who it was that was supposed to follow him and who was supposed to bear his name. He prayed all night and with guidance from the Father he gathered and appointed his 12 apostles. In Mark chapter 6, you flip over a couple of pages. Jesus goes on retreat with his disciples in chapter 6, verse 30. And the apostles turned to Jesus and told him what they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So there's a time of ministry. They're very pressed. It's a very hurried season. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Here Jesus is leading his disciples in retreat. He's taking others with him in this time. He goes on retreat with his disciples by boat. John the Baptist had just died and they needed to grieve together and comfort one another. And the disciples had just finished a mission trip and wanted to talk with Jesus about it. But the crowds of people had interrupted their, their time they interrupted their retreat. And you'd think that Jesus might set a boundary because he needed to take care of his own needs. And certainly we can sympathize with the disciples getting irritated with the crowds at this time. But Jesus is not irritated. You see, Jesus' regular patterns of abiding in prayer prov- provided such a deep storehouse of grace that he could tap into it in times of stress like this. Jesus patiently and generously ministered to the people. He fed 5,000 people with loaves and with fishes. And then immediately, as the rest of this chapter unfolds, after feeding the 5,000 in this place, as they were being pressed by the, th- the throng that was there, Jesus, after the crowds have been fed and cared for and dismissed, he goes right back to retreating with his disciples once again. Verse 45. And immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he'd taken leave on them, what did he do? He went on a mountain to pray. Here he is again, going up on a mountainside to pray in quiet and solitude in the beauty of nature, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. There's a place in Israel that you can go that's on the Sea of Galilee that has like a small little nook in the side of the mountain that's kind of carved out that they say traditionally is the place where Jesus went and prayed and saw his disciples out on the water. Whether or not that's really the place, I don't really know. And I don't think anybody else really knows. But I can tell you this, from his vantage point, he could look out over the sea. And it was there in that place of quiet, of solitude. In a moment of exhaustion after ministering to people with his own emotional needs. His cousin, John the Baptist, has been beheaded, has been killed in the in the moment where he needs his father's nurturing, he makes time to go and receive it. He picks a place with a beautiful view and he prays. And he prays through the night. Meanwhile, out on the sea, a storm erupts. (laughs) And his disciples are stuck in the wind and in the waves. And what does Jesus do? He comes walking to them on the water. (laughs) Now, I can only assume that his ability to do so was somehow connected to his closeness with the Father. You see, Jesus was not playing catch-up in his spiritual life. He was ahead of the game. In his spiritual life. He was spiritually prepared for every step, literally, that the Father would lead him into. 
Turn over to Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13, we have the story of the transfiguration. In verse 2, it says this. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant and, and intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, and they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them and said, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus only. Here, Jesus is transfigured before his disciple. He takes disciples. He takes Peter, James, and John. His three closest relationships. His closest friends. He gathers them away on a mountain for a spiritual retreat. They are renewed in the beauty of nature. They talk. They pray. Jesus in invites them to pray he goes out about a hundred yards away from them and he also begins to pray and when the disciples wake up they see jesus and he has gone radioactive he's glowing the inner glory of what he is on the inside begins to emanate to the outside as jesus's glory is being revealed And suddenly, right before their eyes, Jesus is engaged in a conversation with Moses and Elijah. And he's so glorious that he radiates like the sun. Mark is considered Peter's gospel, and we all know that Peter was not a super complex man. Which is why you get the commentary from Peter. John Mark being his amanuensis, being the one who probably penned that for Peter. But here's the, the commentary from Peter. It says, and his clothes became intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. <laughs> I just love this. Peter's like, it was, it was really white. It was so white. It's like, you, you, you can't get that white. It, it, it was so bright. It was like, if you, if you bleached clothes, really, really white. <laughs> Peter... Here is giving us this description of the radiance of the glory of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. He uses bleach to comparison, to compare it for us. But here's the, here's the deal. Jesus reveals the deepest parts of who he is to his closest friends. He pursues priority in relationships. And he does it in a moment of vulnerability and prayer on his face before his father. And who he is on the inside shines to the outside. And it all happens on a retreat on a mountaintop in the middle of the woods in Galilee or in Israel. Turn with me to Mark 14. Verses 12, really through 31. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, his di disciples said to him, where will you have us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So we see Jesus celebrating Passover. As a matter of fact, we know that Jesus celebrated all of the feasts in Israel because those feasts were prescribed in the law for the Israelites to do. It was a command from God. And Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. So Jesus kept a religious calendar. Here it is at Passover. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and, and, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat 
the Passover with my disciples, and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. Now, on the one, at first blush, this looks like this is some sort of magical, you know, forecasting moment, but probably Jesus had already made arrangements in the upper room. And so he's now giving his instructions to the disciples on how to go and connect with this person that he's already made arrangements with. And there he celebrates the Passover meal on the eve before he would go to the cross with his disciples. Verse 16, And the disciples set out and went into the city, found it just as he had told them. They prepared the Passover, and when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table, eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, it's one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be even better for him that he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took the bread and blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took the cup and, he, and after he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say unto you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus goes to the upper room for the last supper there it was more than a meal. It was a mini retreat to prepare his disciples. And in the upper room discourse, we know that Jesus gave them final instructions about the preparation for his death and what was coming. And he gave them hope for the future saying, don't worry, I'm going away, but, but where I'm going, you're going to end up as well. I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house or many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I have been thinking about this moment I have been preparing for this moment. And everything that is about to happen is a part of the plan and the will of God for the redemption of mankind. And it's good that I'm going away because I'm going to send the comforter. And he's going to come. And he's going to, he's going to lead you into all truth. He's going to remind you of everything that I said. This is so much better. But it's going to be hard. He shares a meal, there's food, there's drink, there's conversation, there's laughter, there's singing. When they exited, it says, in, I think it's in John's gospel, it says that they sang a hymn before they left. I love that. Just imagine Jesus singing with his disciples. They take the sacrament of communion, the very first one ever. And this was an important time of renewal and preparation for the trials of the cross that were coming. In Mark 14, verses 32 to 42, we see Jesus retreat once again with his disciples. He just moves from the upper room over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in verse 32, it says this, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. There it is again, priority of relationships. And he, he comes and he shares the deepest part of his heart with these guys. He's like, I am really, really stressed out right now. I'm really greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch or pray. Keep watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from before him. So Jesus took Peter, James, and John to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there in the olive grove, they watched and prayed all night as a vigil in preparation for the cross. The disciples fell asleep. Jesus came and checked on them a number of times, but then eventually just went and continued in prayer by himself. He persisted in deep prayer. He was so distressed that he sweat great drops of blood. He surrendered his will to the Father over and over. I don't want this, God. 
Father, if there be any other way, let this cut pass from before me. But nevertheless, not, not my will, but your will be done. And he persevered in prayer all night. He gathered his resolve to take on the sin of the world, to be tortured, to have Satan and all hell unleashed on him, to be crucified. Why? Why did he do that? So he could save us. Jesus was able to trust the Father's love for him in all of this. To rely on the Holy Spirit to raise him from the dead. He was ready. He was connected to Abba, his Father. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit to move forward to the cross and to embrace the suffering, to bear the wrath of the Father, to bear the weight of our sin. He was prepared for that in the garden where he surrendered himself once again to his Father. Listen, throughout the life of Jesus as recorded for us in the Gospels, we see Jesus doing what we call in modern parlance spiritual disciplines. Now you could just call these habits. Habits are things that are so ingrained into who we are that they no longer require a lot of mental energy to do. It's like, it's like brushing your teeth. Ever thought about how you can brush your teeth vigorously be thinking about something that's really irritating you and you can just be like grinding at your teeth and never stab yourself in the eye? You know why you can do that? It's because after a season of practicing something over and over and over repetitively, your brain can sort of put it in the subconscious part of the mind and do that repetitive work without having to put a whole lot of thoughtful mental energy into it. This is the same with backing the car out of the driveway or the, the way that you make eggs in the morning. You have an established pattern that becomes sort of second nature. It, it, it's a function of our brain's ability to do what we focus on with greater and greater ease. So let me give you an example from my own life. When I first started to learn how to play guitar, I'm still not very good at it, but when I first started to learn, I, I can remember just the aggravation of trying to get my fingers to move to the right places on the string. And so I would like strum one time with this hand and then I would like contort my hand to try and nail the chord and then the finger strength to get the strings to bend against the frets was, was not really there. And, and it was just hard, hard work. But I, I, I practiced over and over and over and over. And pretty soon, you know what I, I found? I found that oftentimes I didn't even have to look at this hand at all. That many times I was looking at this other hand. Or many times I could just close my eyes and be involved in worshiping God, playing the guitar, because my body knew what to do. And because my body knew what to do, my brain was free to be focused on other things. Primarily the act of worshiping. See, over time, your brain gets better and better at doing habits so that it doesn't require as much effort. And these neural pathways that are created can function without much mental energy being needed to perform the same tasks that were so difficult at one time. It gets easier and easier with practice and with time. And this is the way it is with spiritual disciplines, with drawing close to God, with, with, with living in constant fellowship with the Father. As we practice those things, as we see in the life of Jesus, in just three short years, we've seen him take multiple retreats with his friends. We've seen him draw close to the Father. We've seen him withdraw from public ministry and find a place by himself and, and be refreshed in the Lord. We've seen that over and over. And this is just one of the Gospels. There's actually many more examples in the other Gospels. 
What we see in the life of Jesus is precisely this, a life that lives and moves and breathes centered around God and his kingdom. He is so focused on these things that the rest of life just sort of falls into place. He has well-established habits in his life. What kind of habits? Well, Jesus kept the Sabbath. We know that regularly. He kept the religious calendar and the spiritual rhythms of the year. Dallas Willard actually takes the time and he does a great job of dividing the spiritual disciplines into two categories. For those of you who are taking notes, those two categories are, first of all, disciplines of abstinence. Disciplines of abstinence. And second of all, disciplines of engagement. Disciplines of engagement. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the first one f- first. Disciplines of abstinence. The list of these is meditation, silence, solitude, fasting, simplicity, priority, slowing, abiding, and secrecy. But the question is, are these things that Jesus actually did? Or is this just extra biblical stuff that came up from other places? that arose through the history of the Catholic Church or through monastic lifestyles. Well, let's take the first one, meditation. We, we see that Jesus spent ample time meditating upon Scripture. Matter of fact, he could recall Scripture from memory. He didn't have to say, hey, somebody grab me a scroll and then just give, hold on one second here, guys. Let me just, let me just thumb through the scroll here. Just one second. I'll, I'll be right back and, I'll, and then we'll, we'll talk about this. He doesn't, no, it's in his heart. It's in his mind. He committed it to memory. He went over it and over it and over it and over it. His very first sermon, he quotes from the book of Isaiah. The Bible tells us that, that he opened up the scroll of Isaiah and found the place that said that this is what his ministry would look like. The scroll of Isaiah, if I remember right, I want to say it was like 47 feet long. And they didn't have like chapter 1, chapter 2. It was just text, right? But Jesus is familiar. He knows exactly where it's at. He opens up the scroll. He scans through it. He says, ah, here's the spot I wanted us to, to focus on. He's familiar with the scriptures. He meditated upon the scriptures. Silence and solitude, we just saw a whole bunch of examples of that in the Gospel of Mark alone. Fasting? Yes, Jesus fasted. Matter of fact, he taught that that his disciples would fast. When questioned by the Pharisees, saying, hey, how come your disciples don't fast like the Pharisees? They fasted two days a week. How come your disciples don't, don't do that? Even the disciples of John the Baptist Fast And Jesus said, well, while the bridegroom is with them, they, there's no need to fast because the point of fasting is to draw near to the bridegroom and the bridegroom's here, right? But when I'm gone, they will fast. It's an expectation. Simplicity, Jesus lives simple. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He had to go fishing to pay his taxes. He depended upon the, the, uh, the grace of others, the generosity of others. As he went throughout the hillside, he was supported by others who cared for him and he was de- dependent upon their hospitality. He lived frugally, was not in comp- competition with his neighbor or seeking, ex- seeking fulfillment through things or experiences. He practiced priority. Jesus prioritized his life around the kingdom of God and doing the will of the Father. He said of himself, I always do those things that please the Father. Jesus practiced abiding. Matter of fact, he uses himself as an example of what abiding looks like. He says, as I have been abiding in the Father, so now you abide in me. Secrecy, Jesus taught and lived consistently about a life lived before the face of God. Or as theologians used to call it, theologians love to use Latin, a life lived coram Deo, or in the face of God. It's a phrase that meant 
that, that they live for an audience, or that we live for an audience of one. And he did things that only his father would see. He didn't let his left hand know what his right hand was doing. He wasn't about public accolades. Many times he was telling people, hey, don't go publish this abroad. This is just between you and me and the father. He withdrew into times of prayer that were not public we're not for anybody else's observation. He went into his closet where no one knows what was said between him and the Father. He practiced secrecy. Not in the sense of like keeping secrets, but in the sense of I'm only doing this for the joy and delight of my Father alone. This is not for public consumption. And then second of all, there are disciplines of engagement. And disciplines of abstinence are, are disciplines that where you withhold from yourself, you abstain from something for focus on something else. In silence, you withhold from speaking for the focus of listening. In solitude, you withhold from fellowship for the focus of being present and only before the Father. In fasting, you, you withhold, you abstain from eating so that you can focus your spiritual attention using your stomach like a timepiece, a, a timer that triggers you to pray and to seek the Lord. Those are disciplines of abstinence, but there are disciplines of engagement. This is spiritual disciplines in community. Things like serving. Jesus served people and relationships from feeding 5,000 to meeting Peter's mother-in-law and caring for her to preparing meals for his friends. Study. This is the public study of, uh, of discourse around the scriptures. Jesus was constantly engaged in public study of the scriptures and talk about the scriptures. Celebration from weddings to holidays, to banquets at the houses of sinners, Jesus immersed himself with people and celebrated life with them. Oftentimes we don't think about those things as disciplines, but taking time to enjoy life together takes focus, takes purpose. So serving, study, celebration, prayer. This is not private prayer, this is public prayer. He prayed publicly and with his disciples throughout all the scriptures. We see him at the tomb of Lazarus saying, Father, I know that you always hear me. In another place in the Gospels, we see him speaking out just sort of publicly, randomly. Father, I, I am so grateful that you have chosen to reveal this to these people to those that are simple and you've withheld it from the wise. We see him engaged in public prayer and teaching his disciples how to pray. Teaching those who were his followers how to pray. We see him involved in fellowship. This is another discipline of engagement. He purposefully lived a life with a small group. Think about that. Jesus had a small group. He purposefully lived his life within that community of people. He spent time letting himself be known and knowing them. These were deep, soulful friendships that were centered around their relationship with God. These were not just hangout buddies that go fishing on the weekends. These were deep and intimate friendships where Jesus shared the deepest parts of his heart with a few people. Confession. You know, Jesus didn't have any sin to confess. But he was so honest about his life. When he was distressed, he said, I'm distressed. When he was angry, he said, I'm angry. When he was mad enough to build a whip, he built a whip. <laughs> and drove people out of his father's house, which is what, supposed to be a house of prayer. The next discipline is not only confession, but submission. 
Jesus, Jesus exhibited a submission not only to the authority of his father, but he saw the authorities of the world as an opportunity to submit to his father as well. He paid taxes. He submitted to an arrest, to an unfair trial. He was unjustly beaten by spiritual and civil authorities. And he endured all of this while entrusting himself to God as the righteous judge. And he challenges us to walk in the same discipline. He challenges us to think of our rights not only as something we hang on to, but something that we let go of for the sake of others. That's not an American idea. An American idea is that we hang on to our rights at the expense of others. But kingdom living is the flip-flop of that. Being willing to let go of our rights in the service of others and in the care of others. Okay, so, so what? Jesus practiced spiritual disciplines. We see him practicing spiritual disciplines of abstinence, spiritual disciplines of engagement. Why does this matter, Jeremy? Why does it matter that he kept a religious calendar? Why, why does that matter? What is the point of all this? Why did we spend eight weeks talking about this and writing up resources? By the way, I just want to say this real quick. In the back, all of the resources that we've come up with for the last eight weeks are all available to you back there. If you haven't printed out a copy or you haven't engaged with these things, I I would encourage you to do that. But what is the point of all this? It's this. When Jesus invites us to take his yoke upon us, he's inviting us not just to understand his teachings, not just a mental exercise, but to actually live in their reality. He's inviting us to live in the reality of these disciplines. He invites us to a life that still has all of the challenges, But the way that we carry those burdens is fundamentally changed. We operate from deep physical, emotional, and spiritual reserves rather than running on fumes. And here's some of the benefits of developing a habitual practice of spiritual disciplines. How does this this help us? How does this really help us to live an easier life? Here's some of the benefits. Benefits of spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines, first of all, if you're taking notes, increase our margins. They increase our margins. They slow life down and teach us to live within a life of limitation. They say to us, you can't be friends with everybody, so be friends with few. Be friendly with everyone, but be deep and soulful friends with few. They tell us, you can't be everywhere at once, so be where you are, be present. (laughs) They tell us, you can't know everything, so be simple. They tell us, you can't say everything, so be simple in speech. You say, Jeremy, you should listen to your own advice. I get it, I know. They slow life down and teach us to really live within a life of limitation. Pete Scazzaro the author of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality says this, it is a slowed down spirituality. We say no to lesser things in order to say yes to greater things. We say no to lesser things in order to say yes to greater things. And in the margins of life, we find connection deep an abiding connection with the community of faith and with God himself. Second benefit of spiritual disciplines, we unite our whole being. Spiritual disciplines have a way of emphasizing the oneness of a person. Let me me say it like this. You are not a body with a soul acting spiritual. That is not what you are. Rather, your personhood is body, soul, and spirit. You are not a divided human. 
You are a whole human. And all of you is integrated with one another. It is really difficult to be spiritually refreshed when you are physically wiped out. Your body affects your soul, which affects your spiritual relationship with God. And and this is why in, in pastoral ministry, to just say, hey, read your Bible and pray more is not a fix for every solution, for every problem that people face. We have to take into account. If somebody comes into my office and they say, hey, Jeremy, listen, I I really am, am struggling with sadness and depression. And I go, hey, just read your Bible and pray more. That's, that's not a great fix. We've got to look at the whole of their person. How are you sleeping? Have you had any major changes? Has there been loss in your life? Tell me what's going on. When did you start experiencing this? Tell me what's happening in your heart. Is there sin? Is there rebellion? What is going on in your world? Because it could be from a heart issue that you're suffering, or a brain issue that you're suffering, or a spiritual issue that you're suffering, or emotional pain that you're suffering. We have to do some digging together to figure that stuff out. Spiritual disciplines start with the body and begin working their way inwardly. We say, I'm not going to eat food. I'm going to fast. And that triggers something inside of us. I don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I'm agreeing with Jesus. God, I'm putting away. My body is yelling at me. It's screaming at me. And I'm telling it no because you matter more than what my body says. It unites our whole being. Disciplines start with our body and begin working their way inwardly. Third benefit, they prepare us for life. Their practice or training for self-denial and spiritual renewal. And the training prepares you for the fight. Yesterday, I got outside with my bow and I set up a target in my backyard. I marched out 40 yards and then I just fired, I don't know, 25 arrows back and forth into my target. Why? Why did I do that? Because when it matters, I don't want to miss. When it matters, I don't want to miss. When I'm out in the woods, I'm, I, I see the giant branch bull that God lovingly, generously placed right in my path. I do not want to miss the opportunity that God provided for me. Right? Okay, listen. Life is going to come at you. Spiritual disciplines are training for the moment where life comes at you. It helps you to operate out of reserves rather than out of deficit. It prepares us. It trains us for life. Fourthly, it emphasizes relationship. Spiritual disciplines focus us on the fact that God is a person, not just an idea we believe in. He's not just a set of theological beliefs or markers. He's a person we relate to. They focus you on oneness with Christ, reliance upon the Holy Spirit, and surrender to the Father. Disciplines of relationship rather than duties. And lastly, They actually change us. The Bible tells us that when we meditate on Scripture, our mind is renewed. It's transformed. The Bible tells us that when we we look at Jesus, when we behold His glory in 2 Corinthians, that we are being changed into the same image. We're being made like Jesus when we spend time with Jesus. It actually changes us. And this is why spiritual disciplines are so important. So the question is, how do we do this? First of all, I want you to know this. There's a, there's a, our lives are just a, a puff of steam in the span of eternity. We only have one life to offer to God. We only have one life to give in response to the, to the great love that God has given us. You know, in a hundred years, here's the truth. In a hundred years, I doubt anybody will remember my name. That's the reality. I'm going to live a life here in Medford, Oregon of, of faithfulness to my wife, to my family, to God. 
and I'm going to die, and within one generation, nobody will remember my name. Unless I write some major book, or, you know, have some major thing happen, or start the next revolution, or something, right? Or lead a cult. That would be another option. Now, you might be famous for that. Other than that, I'm probably going to die in obscurity. Okay, that's the reality. So what about my life matters? You know how many millions of people are unnamed in the world? Who lived and died, lived a whole lifetime, had experiences like you and me, just disappeared? Their names are no longer spoken or remembered in any way, shape, or form? Say, Jeremy, this is not hopeful. Listen, this is the point. The only things that matter are what you do for eternity. (laughs) That's it. That's the only things that matter. The only thing that will outlive your life here on earth is what you do for eternity. And it's as simple as a cup of cold water to a child, a prayer softly muttered when I open my eyes in the morning, a song of worship that spontaneously arises as I'm on my way to work. It's a a day of fasting and prayer for my city or for my nation. It's the money that I give that no one but God knows about. It is the deep fellowship I share with my friends. It is the worshipful moment at the table of communion right before I take of the cup and press it to my lips and take the bread and and put it into my mouth and and I just turn my heart once again to God and I say, Lord, unite me with you. It's those kinds of moments It is the lifted hands in worship from a heart of surrender. It is the gospel shared with a family member, a friend, or a co-worker. These are the things that are recorded in heaven for eternity. It is the habits. It is the disciplines in our life. They are the only precious gems that will remain from the house fire of our lives the moments of obedience and surrender that God did not extract but we freely gave of our own volition so here's what I want you to know how do we do this first of all expect opposition recognize that there is going to be opposition it's not going to be easy the world is stacked against you (laughs) that's the reality of it your schedule and time and you know Netflix and doorbells ringing and phone notifications and children running around screaming. It's all just going to be at war with your ability to just center yourself in the Lord. Expect opposition. Second principle, measure in inches rather than miles. Recognize that all true change is slow change. Listen, the goal is not for you to become Jesus tomorrow. Right? Right? The goal is for you to to grow in your closeness with Jesus and be transformed over time. All true change is slow change. We seed in discipline and we keep walking in that rhythm. And if we find we've gone astray, we just keep coming back. We go, no, this is how I live life. No, this is how I live life. No, this is how I live life. A hundred times, a thousand times, a million times until we're dead. That's a life of faithfulness. Measure in inches rather than miles. Do it together. Recognize your need for community. You're not just doing this alone. Do it with other people. Create a plan. Make it a priority. Plan it out. Recognize your need for a plan. Daily, weekly, monthly, annual rhythms. A rule of life that leads you into walking in continual spiritual disciplines. And lastly, do it like, do it. Don't just think about it. Don't just theorize about it. Don't just talk about it with your small group. Do it. Walk with Jesus. Find the margins. Find the space in your life and connect with the Lord. Listen, when we say yes to the easy of Jesus, it does not mean our lives will be easier than the lives of other people. It means that we're learning to walk alongside of Jesus and match our pace with his. It means we're plowing through life with the one who carried the sins of the whole world. 
And since we're plowing in a yoke next to the one who can bear the sins of the world, he can carry the weight of our lives with us. He's qualified to help us carry our burdens. It means we're being changed in the process to become like him. As Mitch comes out and closes us in worship, I want to leave you with this one thing. Pete Scazzaro said this. I was talking to a friend before the service. And I think it's really a powerful thing. It is po- impossible to be spiritually mature and be emotionally immature. Because our emotional ability affects our relationships with people. You see, as a whole person, we have to have an integrated life Our spiritual vibrancy is connected to how we love God and how we actually love people and how we actually live. So when you develop habits or disciplines of a life in Jesus, you will grow in every way as a human. And Jesus says, come, (laughs) learn of me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this series. It's been so good for us to chew on. But God, keep us from just being those who think about these things. May we be doers of your word and not hearers only. By your spirit and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.